Chapter 17 The False Bride While some in recent years have attempted to see the great harlot of Revelation as a city of Rome, the Church throughout Christian history has generally understood that she is in some sense a false bride, a demonic parody of the true bride, the Church. The biblical motif of the bride falling into adultery, apostasy, is so well known that such an identification is all but inescapable. The metaphor of harlotry is exclusively used in the Old Testament for a city or nation that has abandoned the covenant and turned toward false gods. And with only two exceptions, see on verses 1 through 2 below, the term is always used for faithless Israel. The harlot is, clearly, the false church. At this point, however, agreement shatters into factionalism. To the Donatist heretics of the 4th century, the Catholic Church was the whore. Some Greek Orthodox and Protestant theologians have seen her in the Roman papacy, while many fundamentalists have spotted her tinsel charms in the World Council of Churches. Although it is true that there may be, and certainly have been, false churches in the image of the harlot, we must remember the historical context of the revelation and the preterist demands it makes upon its interpreters. Merely to find some example of a false church and identify her as the whore is not faithful exegesis. St. John has set our hermeneutical boundaries firmly within his own contemporary situation in the first century. He has, in fact, stated definitively that the harlot was a current phenomenon, 1718, from which he expects his current readers to separate themselves. Whatever modern applications are made of this passage, we must see them as just that. Applications. The primary significance of the vision must refer to the false church of St. John's Day. We have seen that the book of Revelation presents us with two great cities set in antithesis to each other, Babylon and New Jerusalem. As we shall see in a later chapter, the New Jerusalem is paradise consummated, the community of the saints, the city of God. The other city, which is continually contrasted to the New Jerusalem, is the Old Jerusalem which has become unfaithful to God. Another way to view this is to understand that Jerusalem was intended from the beginning to be the true fulfillment of Babylon, a word meaning, quote, gate of God, unquote, the place of God's gracious revelation of himself and of his covenant should be a true Babylon, a true, quote, gate of heaven, unquote and, quote, house of God, unquote, as Jacob understood when he saw God's staircase to heaven, the true tower of Babel, the true pyramid, which foretold of Jesus Christ, Genesis 28, 10 through 22, compared John 1, 51. But Jerusalem did not walk worthy of the calling with which it had been called. Like the original Babylon, Jerusalem turned its back on the true God and sought autonomous glory and dominion. Like the original Babylon, it was apostate. And thus the, quote, gate of God, unquote, became, quote, confusion, unquote, instead. Genesis 11.9 How did the faithful city become a harlot? It began with the apostasy of the priesthood in Israel. The primary responsibility of the priest, God's representative, is to represent the bridegroom to the bride, and to guard her from danger. Instead, the priesthood led the people in apostasy from their Lord, Matthew 26, 14 through 15, 47, 57 through 68, 27, 1 through 2, 20 through 25, 41 through 43, 62 through 66. Because of the priesthood's failure to bring the bridegroom to Israel, the bride became a harlot in search of other husbands. The apostasy of the priesthood is described in 13, 11-17 under the figure of the beast from the land. But the false bride is not absolved of responsibility. 
she is guilty as well, and St. John's prophecy rightly turns now to consider her judgment and destruction. The symbolic, quote, Babylon, unquote, was destroyed when the seventh angel poured out his chalice, the drink offering of annihilation, 16, 17-21. As we have seen, this vision is part of the fourth seven of Revelation, the seven chalices containing the seven plagues. The connection is provided in 17.1, compare 21.9, which tells us that it is one of the seven chalice angels who gives St. John the vision of the judgment of the great harlot. This vision, therefore, opens up the meaning of the seventh chalice, the destruction of Jerusalem. The Identity of the Harlot 17.1-7 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven chalices came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and those who dwell in the land were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. 4. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her fornication. 5. And upon her forehead a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the land. 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great wonder. 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. 1-2. through two. The vision of the seven chalices continues. One of the seven angels who has the seven chalices shows St. John the fall of the great harlot who sits on many waters. St. John's readers have already been told of a harlot city named, quote, Babylon the Great, unquote, 14.8, And the harlot's resemblance to the original Babylon is underscored by the information that she sits on many waters, an image taken from Jeremiah's description of Babylon in his famous oracle of judgment against her, Jeremiah 50-51. through 51. The expression, many waters, of Jeremiah 51.13 refers both to the Euphrates, which ran through the middle of the city, and to the canals surrounding it. Ultimately, it refers to the blessings which God had bestowed on Babylon, and which she prostituted for her own glory. Thus, St. John describes the great harlot of his day in terms of her prototype and model. Later, in 1715, we are informed of one aspect of the symbolic meaning of the, quote, many waters, unquote. But for now, the point is merely the identification of the harlot with Babylon. At the same time, however, we must recognize that at every other point in Revelation where the expression many waters is used, it is set within a description of God's covenantal relationship and liturgical interaction with his people. We have noted that the voice from the glory clouds sounds like many waters, and that this voice is produced by the innumerable angels in the heavenly council, Ezekiel 124. Similarly, in Revelation 115, Christ's voice is, quote, like the sound of many waters, unquote. Compare Ezekiel 43.2. In 14.2, St. John again hears the voice from heaven as, quote, the sound of many waters, unquote. And in 196, the great multitude of the redeemed, having entered the angelic council in heaven, joins in a song of praise, which St. John hears as, quote, the sound of many waters, unquote. 
The expression is thus reminiscent of both God's gracious revelation and his people's liturgical response of praise and obedience. Given the biblical background and context of the phrase, it would come as no surprise to St. John's readers that the woman should be seen seated on, quote, many waters, unquote. The surprise is that she is a whore. She has taken God's good gifts and prostituted them. Ezekiel 16, 6 through 16, Romans 2, 17 through 24. The harlot city has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. This expression is taken from Isaiah's prophecy against Tyre, where it primarily refers to her international commerce, Isaiah 23, 15-17. Nineveh as well is accused of, quote, many harlotries, unquote, with other nations, Nahum 3, 4. Most often, however, the image of a city or nation playing the harlot with the kingdoms of the world is used in reference to the rebellious covenant people. Speaking against apostate Jerusalem, Isaiah mourned, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was once full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Isaiah 121. The imagery of Israel's adultery is fairly common in the prophets, as they bring God's covenant lawsuit against the bride who has abandoned her husband. Jeremiah spoke against Israel as the harlot, seeking after the false gods of the heathen in place of her true husband. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways, a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. In her month they will find her. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O oh, generation, hear the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say, We are free to roam? We will come no more to thee. Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number, how well you prepare your way to seek love. Therefore, even the wicked women, you have taught your ways. God says, if a husband divorces his wife, and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them, like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Jeremiah 2, 20 20-34, 30-33, 3-1-3. Israel's adulteries, Hosea said, took place, quote, on every threshing floor, unquote, Hosea 9.1. The picture is that of a woman prostituting herself for money in the grain house in harvest time. This carries a double meaning. First, Israel was apostatizing into Baal worship, seeking harvest blessing and fertility from false gods, forgetting that fertility and blessing in every area can come only from the one true God. Second, the temple was built on a threshing floor, 2 Chronicles 3.1, symbolizing God's action throughout history in separating the chaff from his holy wheat, Job 21.18, Psalm 1.4, 35.5, Isaiah 17.13, Luke 3.17.
The threshing floor is also symbolic of the marriage relationship. The union of Boaz and Ruth took place on his threshing floor, Ruth 3, and the action of grinding at a mill is a biblical image of sexual relations, Job 31.10, Isaiah 47.2, Jeremiah 25.10. Thus, instead of consummating her marriage to God through worship at his threshing floor, the bride went whoring after every other threshing floor, prostrating herself before strange gods and alien altars. Apostate Jerusalem is the harlot city. This theme becomes even more prominent in the prophecy of Ezekiel, particularly in Ezekiel 16 and 23, where it is clear that her quote-unquote adulteries consist of religious political alliances with powerful heathen kingdoms. See, for example, Ezekiel 16, 26-29. The people of Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day had abandoned the true faith and had turned to heathen gods and ungodly nations for help, rather than trusting in God to be their protector and deliverer. It is important to note that while Israel herself seems to have regarded these relationships in primarily political terms, the prophets emphasized that the religious issue was central. The reliance of the covenant nation on heathen powers could not be viewed as mere political expediency. It was nothing less than harlotry. Using language so graphic and explicit that most modern pastors won't preach from these chapters, Ezekiel condemns Jerusalem as a degraded, wanton whore. Quote, you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry, unquote. Ezekiel 16.25 Ezekiel's sarcastic portrayal of Israel's adultery is sharp and vivid. She lusts after the supposedly well-endowed Egyptians, whose sex organs are the size of donkeys' genitals, and who produce semen in such prodigious amounts that it rivals that of a horse. 1626 2320. Her adulterous desire, inflamed by pornographic pictures, 23.14-16, is so great that she is willing to pay strangers to come to her, rather than the other way around, 1633-34. She even masturbates with the, quote, male images, unquote, she has made, 1617. Ezekiel's prophecy was crude, and he most certainly offended many of his listeners, but he was simply giving them a faithful description of how offensive they were to God. In the view of the all-holy God who spoke through Ezekiel, nothing could be more obscene than the bride's apostasy from her divine husband. The same was true of Israel in the first century. At the very moment when the promised bridegroom arrived, Israel was fornicating with Caesar. The sight of her true husband only drove her further into adulterous union with, quote, the kings of the earth, unquote. Rejecting Christ's kingship, compare 1 Samuel 8, 7-8, the chief priest cried, quote, We have no king but Caesar, unquote. John 19, 15. The apostasy of Jerusalem led the whole nation into religious and political fornication, Those who dwell on the land, the Jewish people, see comments on 310, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Seduced into such a spiritual stupor that they did not recognize their own Christ. Intoxicated by their apparently successful relationship with the imperial power state, the Jews did not realize that it was a trap. They were being drugged in preparation for their own execution. 3. We have already seen the woman in the wilderness, where she fled from the oppression of the seven-headed dragon, 12.6.14. But that wilderness sojourn was out of necessity, and for a specified time. The true bride does not dwell in the wilderness, the sign of the curse, the habitation of demons, Matthew 12.43, by preference. To the false bride, however, the wilderness is her element. 
She chooses to remain there rather than follow the spirit to the promised land. The wilderness is thus her heritage and her destiny. Compare Numbers 13 through 14, Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. This is, again, a familiar prophetic picture. Apostate Jerusalem is a harlot, plying her obscene trade alongside wilderness roads like a wild ass in heat. Compare Jeremiah 2 through 3, Hosea 2. It is as if the woman of Revelation 12, having fled to the wilderness for protection, has become accustomed to desert life and established an intimate relationship with the dragon. St. John sees her sitting on a scarlet beast. It is not immediately clear whether the scarlet beast is the dragon or the sea beast. Like the sea beast, it is full of blasphemous names. Compare 13.1. And, like the dragon, it has seven heads and ten horns. Compare 12.3. The order is reversed for the sea beast, which has ten horns and seven heads. 13.1. Since she is seated, quote, on many waters, unquote, verse 1, and on the scarlet beast as well, the imagery seems to suggest that the beast has risen up out of the sea. Compare 11.7. 13.1. The most likely solution is simply to see the passage as a reference to Jerusalem's apostate intimacy with both Satan and the Empire. Rome was the devil's reigning political incarnation, and the two could certainly be considered together under one image. Israel was dependent upon the Roman Empire for her national existence and power. From the testimony of the New Testament, There is no doubt that Jerusalem was politically and religiously, quote, in bed, unquote, with institutionalized paganism, cooperating with Rome in the crucifixion of Christ and the murderous persecution of Christians. Incidentally, this is one of the many indications that the harlot is not Rome, for she is clearly distinct from it. She is seated on the beast supported and maintained by him whose seven heads represent, among other things, the famed, quote, seven hills, unquote, of Rome, 17.9. It is worth noting, too, that there is a contrast between the throne of God, supported by the living creatures who are, quote, full of eyes, unquote, and who are day and night engaged in God's praise, 4, 6 through 8, compare Ezekiel 10.12, and the harlot queen, whose throne is supported by a beast who is full of blasphemous names. 4. The woman is clothed in purple and scarlet, garments of splendor and royalty for one who sits as a queen. 18.7, see Judges 8.26, 2 Samuel 1.24, Daniel 5.7, Luke 16.19. She is gilded with gold and precious stones and pearls, in keeping with the biblical descriptions of the glorious city of God, Isaiah fifty four eleven through twelve, sixty five through eleven, Revelation twenty one eighteen through twenty one, based further on the pattern of the jewel littered Garden of Eden, Genesis two eleven through twelve, Ezekiel twenty eight thirteen. Jewelry is also a feature both of the high priest's garments. Exodus 28, 9-29, and of the throne of God, 4, 3-4. There is thus no need to see the woman's garments and jewels as merely the loud, bold, and extravagant decking out of a harlot's costume. Instead, these are originally the clothes of the righteous woman, the bride, who is supposed to be arrayed, arrayed in glorious dress. Compare Exodus three twenty two. Ezekiel sixteen eleven through fourteen, Proverbs thirty one twenty one through twenty two. Saint John wants his readers to see the harlot adorned in the beautiful garments of the church. He wants them to understand that this degenerate whore, who fornicates with beasts, is still carrying the trappings of the pure and chaste bride. We should note, however, that the enormous veil covering the temple gate, over eighty feet high and twenty four feet wide was, quote, a Babylonian tapestry, embroidered with blue and fine linen. 
compare 1816, and scarlet and purple, unquote. The false bride celebrates a communion of sorts. She holds in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her fornication. Combining the images of unclean food, compare Leviticus 11, and unclean marriage, compare Leviticus 20, see especially Leviticus 20, 22-26. The picture is slightly changed from that of Jeremiah 51-7, where the original Babylon is described as, quote, a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth, unquote. But the basic idea is similar. Jerusalem still has the beautiful chalice of the covenant, but the communion she offers leads men to death and destruction. Her cup is full of, quote, abominations, unquote, a word which the Bible often uses in connection with the worship of false gods, Deuteronomy 29.17, Ezekiel 5.11. Pharisaic Jerusalem prides itself on its observance of the ceremonial cleanliness regulations, but in reality it is radically unclean, defiled from within by its apostasy and fornication, Matthew twenty three twenty five through 28 Mark 7, 1 through 23. The overall picture may well be, as Ford has observed, quote, a parody of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, wearing the vestments specially reserved for that occasion and holding the libation offering. However, instead of the sacred name upon his brow, the priest harlot bears the name Babylon mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, a title illustrating Ezekiel 16, 43-45, Revised Standard Version, where Yahweh speaks of the lewdness of Jerusalem, unquote. 5. The harlot has on her forehead a name written. By now the writing on the forehead is a familiar image in Revelation. We have seen it on the saints, 312, 73, 14.1, and on the followers of the beast, 13, 16 through 17. The forehead is especially singled out as a symbol of rebellion, Isaiah 48.4, Ezekiel 3.9. Rebellious Israel is said to have, quote, a harlot's forehead, unquote, Jeremiah 3.3. 3. But the name written there begins with the word mystery. Corsini has properly noted the significance of this much-overlooked fact. Quote, if the prostitute is called mystery, that means that she, even in the moment in which she is judged and condemned, still forms an integral and important part in the divine plan of salvation. This cannot be the case for Rome or any other pagan city, but only for Jerusalem. Only she and no other city will be renewed and will descend from heaven upon Mount Zion to celebrate a marriage with a lamb. 21.2 through 10 following. Because in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God should be fulfilled. 10.7. The harlot's symbolic name continues. Babylon the Great. For she is heiress and namesake of the ancient city which was the epitome of rebellion against God. Genesis 11, 1-9, Jeremiah 50-51. The name also serves to remind us of her high calling, that she was created to be the true Babylon, the gate of God. Instead, however, she has followed the path of the old Babylon and her apostate rejection of God's lordship over her. Now identified with bestiality and confusion, she has become, quote, the mystery of lawlessness, unquote, 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the mother of harlots, corresponding to, quote, Jezebel, unquote, and her, quote, children, unquote, spoken of in 2.20-23. Compare the description of Jerusalem as a mother of harlots in Ezekiel 16.44-48. 6-7. through 7. Now we see what the harlot has in her cup. The demonic communion with which she and her paramours, verse 2, compare 14.8, are becoming drunk. It is the blood of the saints and, 
of the witnesses of Jesus. This is, quote, the wine of her fornication, unquote, the sacrament of her apostasy from the true faith, the ultimate unclean food, compare Leviticus 17, 10-14. While it is true that Rome became a great persecutor of the church, we must remember that Jerusalem was the preeminent transgressor in this regard. The Roman persecution came about through the Jews' instigation and connivance, as the book of Acts constantly informs us. Jerusalem's whole history, in fact, was one of relentless persecution of the godly, and especially of the prophets, Matthew 21, 33-44, Acts 7, 51-53. As St. John tells us in 1824, quote, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth, unquote. Jerusalem was the persecutor of the prophets par excellence. But it is not always easy to look at things with, quote, theological, unquote, eyes. At the moment of her glory, a successful harlot is beautiful, alluring, seductive. God's word is realistic and does not pretend that evil always appears repulsive. The temptation to sin, as we all know, can be very attractive. Genesis 3, 6, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. As St. John beheld the great harlot, therefore, he was quite taken in, fascinated with her beauty. He wondered with great wonder. Compare Revelation 13, 3-4. And the whole land wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. Unquote. The angel, therefore, rebukes him. Why do you wonder? St. John records this to warn his readers against being seduced by the harlot for she is beautiful and impressive. The antidote to being deceived by the wiles of the false bride is to understand the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. The angel will now reveal the nature of the harlot's alliance with the beast, her opposition to Christ and her approaching destruction. St. John's readers must understand that there is no longer any hope of, quote, reform from within, unquote. Jerusalem is implacably at war with Jesus Christ and his people. The once holy city is now a whore. The angel explains the mystery, 17, 8 through 18. 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the land will wonder, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast, that he was and is not, and will come. 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. 10. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. 11. And the beast which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is of the seven, and he goes to destruction. 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. 13. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. 15. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. 16. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate, and will make her naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. 17. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose, to execute one purpose, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. 18. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. 8. 
The angel begins his explanation by speaking about the beast, since the harlot's intimacy with the beast is so integral to her character and destiny. Again, we must note that this is a composite beast, compare verse 3 above, comprising the attributes of both the Roman Empire and its original, the dragon. Milton Terry says, quote, In his explanation, the angel seems to point our attention particularly to the spirit which actuated the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet alike. And so what is here affirmed of the beast has a special reference to the different and successive manifestations of Satan himself. Hence, we understand by the beast that was and is not an enigmatical portraiture of the great red dragon of 12.3. He is the king of the abyss in 9.1 and the beast that killed the witnesses in 11.7. He appears for a time in the person of some great persecutor or in the form of some huge iniquity, but is after a while cast out. Then he again finds some other organ for his operations and enters it with all the malice of the unclean spirit who wandered through dry places, seeking rest and finding none, until he discovered his old house empty, swept, and garnished, as if to invite his return." The angel represents the beast as a parody of, him who is, and who was, and who is to come. The beast was, and is not, and is about to ascend up out of the abyss. At this point, it is likely that the specific human referent of the beast is Vespasian, who became Caesar after the chaos which followed upon the death of Nero. Ford comments, quote, The beast was, Vespasian was in favor with Nero, and is not, he fell from favor, and will come from the abyss, he was restored with the help of the men of the pit, an epithet for perverse men from Qumran. Vespasian stands parallel to he who is to come. In a sense, the empire passed through the same stages. It was, from Caesar to Nero, was not in the critical year of the four emperors, and came again with Vespasian, unquote. Ultimately, as we have seen, this is a description of the original beast, the dragon, the ancient enemy of God and his people. If at the moment there is a temporary respite from his cruel opposition, the Christians must be aware that he is about to ascend again out of the abyss to attack and persecute them again. Nevertheless, St. John reminds them that the beast's defeat is assured, for his ascension is not to power and glory at the right hand of God, but only in order to go to destruction. The word destruction is Apollyon, the root of Apollyon, the, quote, king of the abyss, unquote, in 9-11. St. John is pointing out that although the beast is allowed for a time to ascend out of the abyss, he is just as certain to return there. His destiny is utter destruction, and he cannot succeed in destroying the church. But the dragon-slash-beast will be successful in carrying off apostate Israel into his idolatrous cult. Those who dwell on the land will wonder, when they see the beast, that he was, and is not, and will come. The word used earlier for the beast's rise from the abyss is anabino, in mimicry of Christ's resurrection ascension. The word come here is paristemi, the verb form of parousia, in imitation of Christ's coming in power and glory, bringing judgment and salvation. The definitive parousia occurred at the ascension, resulting in Christ's parousia against Jerusalem in AD 70. Thus, just as the first century Christians lived in expectation of their Lord's near parousia, so the apostate Jews looked to the beast for deliverance and salvation. The, quote, second coming, unquote, of the dragon, after his apparent and real defeat by Christ, was an occasion of wonder, astonishment, and worship by the Christ-rejecting Jews. The rise of the total state in opposition to the kingdom of Christ was for rebellious Israel an ascension to glory, a parousia, a day of the Lord, 
the beast was their Messiah, and his anti-Perusia delivered them into the hands of Apollyon, the perdition and destruction of the abyss. The only ultimate issue of the beast's ascension from the abyss is the greater damnation of himself and his worshippers. Why, ultimately, did the Jews reject Christ and worship the dragon? Because, in contrast to Christ's elect, who were, quote, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, unquote, Ephesians 1.4, apostate Israel's name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Compare 13.8. St. Peter wrote that Jesus Christ, the great cornerstone, was, for the Jews, quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed, unquote. 1 Peter 2.8. Instead, the church has inherited the former status, Exodus 19.6, held by Israel, quote, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, unquote. 1 Peter 2.9. 9 through 10. The angel turns to speak of the dragon's incarnation in the beast from the sea. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The, quote, seven mountains, unquote, again identify the beast as Rome, famous for its, quote, seven hills, unquote. But these also correspond to the line of the Caesars, for they are seven kings, five have fallen. The first five Caesars were Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. One is Nero, the sixth Caesar, was on the throne as St. John was writing the Revelation. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Galba, the seventh Caesar, reigned for less than seven months. 11. But the fall of the Julio-Claudian dynasty and the severe political chaos attending it must not be interpreted by Christians to mean the end of troubles. For their real enemy is the beast, who will become incarnated in other Caesars as well. He is also an eighth king, yet is of the seven. The anti-Christian brutality of succeeding tyrants will mark them as being of the same stripe as their predecessors. Eight is the number of resurrection in the Bible. St. John is warning that even though the empire will seem to disintegrate after the rule of the seven kings, it will be, quote, resurrected, unquote, again, to live on in other persecutors of the church. Yet the empire's comeback will not result in victory for the beast. For even the eighth, the resurrected beast, goes to destruction. The church will have to exercise patience during the period of the beast's ascendancy, but she has the assurance that her enemies will not succeed. Their king will be victorious. His servants have been predestined to share in his triumph. 12. The ten horns which St. John saw on the beast are ten kings. The number ten in the Bible, as we have noted on other occasions, is related to the concept of, quote, manyness, unquote, of quantitative or numerical fullness. That these, quote, kings, unquote, are associated with the beast, adorning his head as, quote, crowns, unquote, and that they receive authority with the beast, that is, by virtue of their relationship with him, indicates that they are rulers subject to or allied with the empire. Rome actually had ten imperial provinces, and some have read this as a reference to them. It is not necessary, however, to attempt a precise definition of these ten subject kings. The symbol simply represents, quote, the totality of those allied or subject kings who aided Rome in her wars, both on Judaism and Christianity, unquote. The burden of the text is to point to these kings with whom the harlot has plied her trade, verse 2. 
as the instruments of her eventual destruction. Verse 16 through 17. 13 through 14. St. John records that the, quote, ten kings, unquote, join with the beast against Christ, persecuting the church throughout the provinces and subordinate kingdoms of the empire. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast in order to wage war against the lamb, as Michael and his angels had waged war with the dragon, 12.7. This has always been the ultimate goal of reprobate bands' exercise of government, the attempt to dethrone God. As the psalmist foretold, quote, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 2.2, compare Acts 2.26. The apostolic commentary on this text is revealed in an early prayer of the persecuted church. After quoting Psalm 2, they said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Acts 4.27-28 The ungodly are united in the bond of hatred against the Son of God, the Anointed One. That is why we are told the outcome of the conspiracy of Herod and Pilate against Christ. Quote, Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before, they had been at enmity with one another. Unquote. Luke 23.12 Enemies will unite in fighting a common foe. And in the advent of Christ, we see the world of pagans and apostates joining together in rebellion against him. But the psalmist, long before, had warned kings and rulers to, quote, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him, unquote. Psalm 2.11-12 The outcome of this cosmic struggle is thus assured and inevitable, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. St. John assures the church that in their terrible and terrifying conflict with the awesome might of imperial Rome, the victory of Christianity is guaranteed. 15. The angel now explains the significance of the waters, where the harlot sits. These are described in terms of a fourfold designation. Peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues, that is, the world. The identification of the ungodly, rebellious nations of the world with the raging sea is a familiar one in scripture. Compare 13.1. Isaiah wrote of, quote, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale, unquote. Isaiah 17, 12 through 13, quote, the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Unquote. Isaiah 57, 20-21 Jerusalem could truly be portrayed as seated on, quote, many waters, unquote. That is, the nations. Because of the great and pervasive influence the Jews had in all parts of the Roman Empire before the destruction of Jerusalem. Their synagogues were in every city, and the extent of their colonization could be seen in the record of the day of Pentecost, which tells us that, quote, There were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, unquote. Acts 2 5. 16. In their war against Christ, the raging nations turn against the harlot because of her connection with him. The angel portrays this new enmity toward the harlot by a fourfold description. 
the peoples of the empire will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and will make her naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Compare Jeremiah 13, 26, Lamentations 1, 8 through 9, Nahum 3, 5. Jerusalem had committed fornication with the heathen nations, but in AD 70 they turned against her and destroyed her, making her desolate. The same word is used in Matthew 24:15, Mark 13:14, and Luke 21:20, 20, reflecting the Greek version of Daniel 9:26-27, the abomination of desolation. One of the punishments for a convicted adulteress in the ancient world was the public humiliation of being stripped naked. Compare Isaiah 47, 2-3, Jeremiah 13:26, Lamentations 1, 8, Ezekiel 16, 37, 39, 23, 29, Hosea 2, 10, Nahum 3, 5. Another connection with, quote, Jezebel, unquote, 2:20, compare on 17:5 is made here. The nations eat her flesh, as the dogs, compared to 22.15, had eaten the flesh of the original Jezebel, 1 Kings 21.23-24, 2 Kings 9.30-37. The prophets who spoke of Jerusalem as the whore had said that just as a priest's daughter who became a harlot was to be, quote, burned with fire, unquote, Leviticus 21.9, so God would use Jerusalem's former, quote, lovers, unquote, the heathen nations, to destroy her and burn her to the ground. Jeremiah 4, 11 through 13, 30 through 31, Ezekiel 16, 37 through 41, 23, 22, 25 through 30. Russell observed that, quote, Tacitus speaks of the bitter animosity with which the Arab auxiliaries of Titus were filled against the Jews. And we have a fearful proof of the intense hatred felt towards the Jews by the neighboring nations and the wholesale massacres of that unhappy people perpetrated in many great cities just before the outbreak of the war. The whole Jewish population of Caesarea were massacred in one day. In Syria, every city was divided into two camps, Jews and Syrians. In Scythopolis, upwards of 13,000 Jews were butchered. In Ascalon, Ptolemaeus, and Tyre, similar atrocities took place. But in Alexandria, the carnage of the Jewish inhabitants exceeded all the other massacres. The whole Jewish quarter was deluged with blood, and 50,000 corpses lay in ghastly heaps in the streets. This is a terrible commentary on the words of the angel interpreter. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast these shall hate the whore, etc. Unquote. It is important to realize, as we noted above, that the beast destroyed Jerusalem as part of his war against Christ. The Roman leader's motive in destroying the temple was not only to put down the Jewish rebellion, but to obliterate Christianity, as Sulpitius Severus recorded. Titus is said, after calling a council, to have first deliberated whether he should destroy the temple, a structure of such extraordinary work. For it seemed good to some that a sacred edifice, distinguished above all human achievements, ought not to be destroyed, inasmuch as, if preserved, it would furnish an evidence of Roman moderation, but if destroyed, would serve for a perpetual proof of Roman cruelty. But on the opposite side, others, and Titus himself, thought that the temple ought specially to be overthrown in order that the religion of the Jews and of the Christians might more thoroughly be subverted, for that these religions, although contrary to each other, had nevertheless proceeded from the same authors, that the Christians had sprung up from among the Jews, and that, if the root were extirpated, the offshoot would speedily perish. The beast thought that he could kill the whore and the bride in one stroke, but when the dust settled, the scaffolding of old apostate Jerusalem lay in ruins, and the church was revealed as the new and most glorious temple, God's eternal dwelling place. 17. The Sovereign Lord is thus not at the mercy of the beast and his minions. Rather, all these events have been predestined for God's glory. 
through the execution of his decrees. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast. Obviously, it is a sin for these kings to give their kingdoms to the beast for the purpose of making war against the lamb. And yet it is God who put it into their hearts. Some will complain, of course, that this makes God, quote, the author of sin, unquote. The obvious answer to such an objection is that the text says that God placed the evil purpose into their hearts. At the same time, we are assured that, quote, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, unquote. If we believe the Bible, we must believe both Revelation 17.17 17 and Psalm 145.17. We must hold firmly to two seemingly contra contradictory points. First, God is not responsible for sin. Second, nothing happens in spite of him or in opposition to his purpose. Thus, to those who fight against the word of God, the biblical response is blunt. Quote, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor? Unquote. Romans 9, 20-21 St. Augustine observed, quote, It is therefore in the power of the wicked to sin, but that in sinning they do this or that is not in their power, but in God's, who divides the darkness and regulates it, so that hence even what they do contrary to God's will is not fulfilled, except it be God's will. Unquote. The whole purpose for the heathen king's wrath for their joining in conspiracy against both the bride and the harlot, for their surrendering their kingdoms to the beast and receiving power for one hour with them is now revealed. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, until the words of God should be fulfilled. The war between Christ and the beast, culminating in the desolation of the harlot, took place in fulfillment of God's announcements through his prophets. The curses of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, were executed on Israel through the beast and the seven horns. They were the instruments of God's wrath, as Christ had foretold in his discourse on the Mount of Olives. During these horrifying, quote, days of vengeance, unquote, he said, all things that were written would be fulfilled, Luke 21, 22. Vision and prophecy would be sealed and completed in the destruction of the old world order. Daniel 9.24 18. The angel now identifies the harlot as the great city, which, as we have seen, St. John uses as a term for Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified, 11.8, 16.19. Moreover, says the angel, this city has a kingdom over all the kings of the earth. It is perhaps this verse more than any other which has confused expositors into supposing, against all other evidence, that the harlot is Rome. If the city is Jerusalem, how can she be said to wield this kind of worldwide political power? The answer is that Revelation is not a book about politics. It is a book about the covenant. Jerusalem did reign over the nations. She did possess a kingdom which was above all the kingdoms of the world. She had a covenantal priority over the kingdoms of the earth. Israel was a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6, exercising a priestly ministry of guardianship, instruction, and intercession on behalf of the nations of the world. When Israel was faithful to God, offering up sacrifices for the nations, the world was at peace. When Israel broke the covenant, the world was in turmoil. The Gentile nations recognize this. 1 Kings 10.24, Ezra 1.4-7, compare Romans 2.17-24. Yet, perversely, they would seek to seduce Israel to commit whoredom against the covenant. And when she did, they would turn on her and destroy her. 
That pattern was repeated several times over until Israel's final excommunication in AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. The desolation of the harlot was God's final sign that the kingdom had been transferred to his new people, the church. Matthew 21, 43, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 11, 19, 15, 5, 21, 3. The kingdom over the kingdoms will never again be possessed by national Israel.